0: Good morning! You're listening to Morning Musings on Divine Mercy Radio with Matthew Hogan. And now, here's Matthew. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Morning Musings. My name is Matthew Hogan, and today I'm joined by Diana Kerner. Would you mind introducing yourself to everyone? Hi, Matt. Yes, some of you know me. I'm Diana Kerner. I was a professor of nursing out at Fort Hays State University for 25 years, and prior to that, taught at the VoTech School for 10 years, and I've been in nursing my whole life. So about 10, almost 15 years ago now, I retired. And so it's given me some extra time. Yes. Yeah, so we're here today to talk a little bit about some patron saints that are probably especially pertinent due to the fact that they're the patron saints of Russia and Ukraine and the current war going on there and how we want it to end and hopefully a relatively peaceful resolution soon. But I think a good place to start today would be, why would we take an interest in saints? I have to say, when looking back for myself, I started getting my interest in looking at saints uh, with confirmation and finally decided St. Catherine of Siena was the one that I wanted for my patron saint at Confession, but then I was still interested. And over the years, I've developed a lifelong interest in St. Jude Thaddeus, who is the patron saint of hope. Back when I first started in my high school and college years, he was called the patron saint of hopelessness, but I think they want to take a more positive look, so he's now the patron saint (laughs) of hope. And so I found with retirement that. I had more time to learn about the saints and more time to pray for others. People began to ask me, who's the patron saint of this or a patron saint for this or whatever, and so I started my accumulation of various different saints. But then when Russia bombed Ukraine, I thought, well, who are the patron saints of these two countries? Because many countries have a patron saint. And so the first one I found was St. Yosefat from Ukraine and for Ukraine and then St. Nicholas of Myra for Russia. And now that kind of surprised me. I didn't think of him as being... One for Russia. In one of my daily readings that I read, I ask God to remind me to turn to your saints because I learn ways to even be more active in my faith and to find guidance and inspiration from them. The One definition I really like from my Saints of the Day, it's on page 28, it states, saints are simply people who with God's grace have tried to find the most generous way of living out God's love. Basically, that includes standing up for the faith whenever the need arises standing up for the faith. What's a, what's a good way that St. Nicholas of Myra did it then? He had several examples. One of them was that he fought for the faith. He became imprisoned by the Emperor Diocletian around the year 303 AD. Was imprisoned, but he was evidently released because he went on to also become a Greek Orthodox priest. That was one of the worst persecutions, too, from Diocletian. Oh, yes, it was terrible. Many many martyrs. It was terrible. He was a very young man when his parents died, and he was raised by his uh, uncle, who was a bishop. But St. Nicholas was, at that time, fairly wealthy, and he decided he wanted to have help the needy and to glorify God. So he didn't want to go out and spend his money on all kinds of extraneous things. He was a saint that lived around the fourth century, and he was very open and aware of what was going on in his environment, and his community. History relates that one day he became really aware of a destitute father who had three daughters, and he had no dowry for them. So back in that fourth century, what were the women, the young girls going to do? They would probably become prostitutes. So Saint Nicholas dropped a bag of gold through window at night for the dowry for the first girl. And oh, thanksgiving and praise. And she got married. And now he still had two more to get married off. So again, another bag of gold was dropped through the window for the second one. And so for the third one. And the thing of it is, the man wondered what generous person is, you know, giving us this gold so that they can be married. So after the third bag, he decided to follow him. So he followed (laughs) him and and finally found out it was Nicholas, the priest that was doing this. And so he was very, you know, the St. Nicholas, I believe at this point was saying, just keep everything quiet. Just go ahead and, you know, take care of things. And one of the things for the parishioners of St. Nick's here in town, if you go to the inside of the church and look at the statue of St. Nicholas, he's holding three gold balls. And those each represent the bag of gold that he gave to this destitute father Mm -hmm. to take care of his his daughters. Then we also have the situation that this whole idea of giving and being anonymous or that sort of thing, it kind of trickled down through the centuries. And what's transpired is that Nicholas has now become the kind of pre precursor in the 19th century to that famous gift-giving person we call Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how that historically kind of happened over the centuries. Other things that Nicholas is also very much against and was very preached a lot against was Arianism and Paganism. And so he was he was not afraid to speak what he felt was right. Arianism was a serious problem too. Oh yeah, very much so. And in another incidents that happened that we do know about, the governor of Eustasius took a bribe to execute three men. Nicholas was so Determined to find out what was going on, he went to the site of the execution and stopped the executioner and released the three men. He then berated at length the governor who admitted to his crime and asked for forgiveness. That really indicates that the power of Nicholas was his ability to not only stop the executioner, let the men go free, and then to really get down and berate the governor of that area to actually ask for forgiveness at that time. (laughs) So, another thing that kind of happened is some years later, another situation happened, but it's, it's similar to that, but a little bit different. This was with the Emperor Constantine. And so if you remember, he his mother was the one who found the true cross and he was the first Christian emperor of Rome. And so what he did was three men were imprisoned and they prayed to St. Nicholas's saving, just like he had done with the three young girls in saving them uh, years before. And so they prayed to him, asked him to save them. And the night Nicholas appeared in a dream to the emperor that night, and the emperor heard that the three men had called on Nicholas. So this gives you an indication of a little bit of the power of the man himself as Nicholas. Nicholas set them free. And then the emperor sent a letter to Nicholas, and he said, basically, do not threaten me again in in my dreams anymore. (laughs) So, you know, I think Constantine got the message after that. There is a really great popularity in Russia Orthodox Church for St. Nicholas. He was called a saint long before the process of canonization ever began in the church. And that's called pre-congregation. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about some saints that were prior to canonization process, they're in that area of pre-congregation, mm-hmm. and were constituted and seen as saints during prior to that time. Now, as far as his feast day, it is December 6th, St. Nicholas Day. We've honored that for a long, long time. And he, like we say, is revered really in many, many parts of the world. And a lot of people call on him for protection, for children, for those who are in a state of poverty, for floods, and of course, because technically, I mean, because he saved those young women for brides. So he's also a good saint to pray to for brides. Makes sense. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Another thing that I thought I'd give you a little bit of current history, The first church of St. Nicholas was built in Kiev in the late 1800s. So we're looking from about fourth century to the 1800s. But prior to 1917, which when the Bolsheviks came in and took over Russia, there were about 54,000 churches in Russia and a thousand monasteries. Now that surprised me, but in all of Russia, it was a a country that was heavily involved in church and in the beliefs of the church. But once the Bolsheviks came to power, the focus was on an anti-religion campaign. They were out to destroy any kind of Thing that could bring religious thoughts to mind, and that meant many religious sites were bombed, were torn down, were totally destroyed, and the seminaries were disbanded, and the whole thing. I mean, they really, really went through to clean house as much as they possibly could. And what they did on some of the buildings is they made them into government buildings for the Bolshevik group, and so that's what transpired in many cases. But I also found reference that some of them were actually made into theaters because they had those big, huge domes, and you know everything, and you could put a theater stage up front, you know, that sort of thing. And some were even made into swimming pools. They were just destroyed totally. And many Christians over the years were killed for their faith. And I'm talking about thousands of them from 1917 till about the 1980s, 1990s in that area. So many, many people were killed during that time. But it's interesting to note that by the late 1800s, only 6,800 churches remained out of the Mm 54,000 in Russia. And about 50 seminaries remained. However, the Russian Orthodox Church was restored, and by the end of the 2000s, there were 21,000 churches and about 1,000 monasteries who were actually functioning in the country. We will now return to the Sunrise Morning Show.